This is a very special episode to me because many years ago when I was in business school, there was one person, one professor who took me by the hand and helped me become the person that I am today. He helped me understand how I can develop my writing skills, my reading skills, my thinking skills, my negotiating skills, and to be um, a better person, a better entrepreneur, and a better citizen of the world. And that is uh, Professor Tim Vogus. He's not only an award-winning business school professor, at Vanderbilt, but he's also my good friend. And today we talk about how the best MBAs think and negotiate, and it starts right now. One thing is for certain, just because it's tried and true doesn't mean it's working right now. So the big question is this, where can you learn what is working right now? The strategies, the tactics, the psychology, and the exact how-to. How to grow your business. How to blow up your personal brand and supercharge your personal growth. That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Sharon Srivatsa, and welcome to Business School. So who actually calls you Dr. Tim Bogus? Does anyone call you Dr. Tim Bogus? No, no one calls me doctor. Well, I guess maybe in an intro email, if somebody wants to ask me for something, Dr. Vogus, uh, you know, will you do this for me? Uh, but otherwise, no. I mean, so a lot of the most students are like just Vogus. Yeah. But there's also, <laughs> hey, Vogus, do this for me. I, I, you know, as you well know, I, I'm fine with just first names, right? I'm not a big titles kind of person. Uh, and even on occasion, as you well know, people yeah. uh, go to the old hip hop nickname for me. Yeah. So, so let's let's I, let's break that down first because I think that's good rapport building here. So, how did <laughs> how did how did T Love come about? So, T Love came about in high school. We were just coming up with nicknames in high school. And to be honest, you know, T Love for me in high school, given my uh, track record with love in high school, was mostly ironic. Yeah. I think. Uh, <laughs> But it was kind of like I came up in the era where, you know, those were the kind of rap names, Ice-T, Ice-Cube, T-Love, uh, you know, D-Nice, Greg Smooth, you know, like, uh, you know, <laughs> Greg Nice, you know, like those kind of things, you know. You, so. you, you spit out like nine of those really fast. There. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the era, right? Like those are the things, so, you know, like. So that was in the, what, early 90s, you know, yeah. so when I got So it's probably uh, junior or senior year in high school. Um, and, and, and it stuck and it, it stuck. not only did it stick, but your passion has stuck for it. Oh yeah. Since then too. Right. And oh yeah. I mean, I've loved rap music. The first time I heard it, my brother who's younger than me, and I don't know why he got this. He got an audio cassette for a birthday or Christmas or something called electric breakdance. And this, and this had on it. So it was like 1984 probably. And on it, it had jam on it by nucleus, you know, it's a classic. It had a uh, white lines by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. It had It's Like That by Run DMC. So off their first album, this is before, this is two albums before Walk This Way and they changed the whole game. So that song just opened it up when I heard it because it, it had a real social consciousness to it. It was talking about poverty and a lot of different things, but it was just the rock combined with the hip hop, you know, and it was just in your face. And I just, that was it. Yeah. I was hooked. I've loved rap music since I was nine years old. So, so how do how do you deal? Uh, how do you stay kind of connected to the genre while having kids at home, watching language? Yeah. How do you do all that? 
yeah, well, and my kids don't really like it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and some of that they sh- most assuredly should not be listening to. Uh, but uh, it's, you know, so how I stay current on it is just, you know, Twitter, I follow a lot of people, try to stay up on, you know, some of those things, things like Rap Caviar and stuff like that, that sites that kind of push it out. Uh, so I'm not, and my students, once they know, yeah. I, I like rap music, they'll say, oh, have you heard? And the yeah. answer is typically no. Uh, but uh, the other thing that helps me stay current is I listen to Hip Hop Nation on Sirius XM. So that yeah. has a little bit of the more current stuff. I mean, within a within a relatively narrow band, because like any kind of commercial radio plays all you know, <laughs> same songs over and over again. Um, so those, those are the ways I stay up on it. But I also still, you know, track with some of my old favorite artists, you know, you know people have been releasing albums for a long time, like Run the Jewels just released a new album this this summer. That's great. Uh, but it's their fourth one, right? Like, so I've been, I've been with them a while. So yeah. you just kind of stay on board with some of your old favorites, like Black Thoughts got a new thing coming out from The Roots, uh, you know, so... Stay, stay I, I hope I hope people are enjoying it because I have zero idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Clearly, there is no limit to my desire to talk to about this in great detail. <laughs> I, so, I, I am a nerd on many things, on many levels, Sharon. This is one of the ways in which I am a nerd. So I, is, I love to just talk about so this. So I'm assuming this, so this is a definitely a um, kind of a good counterbalance to the kind of deep work that you have, that you do both, um, because as, as you are a, as you, not only are you in a a teaching institution, but you are in a practical teaching institution, teaching business school students and, 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 and the exec MBA students, but you're also in a, under the, under the umbrella of a research institution. Yep. So you're where, um, just, just for guidance for audience perspective, where are your current kind of research interests? Where do they lie? What are you working on right now? Yeah, so I'm working on like three categories of things. So one of them, so a longstanding interest of mine has been in healthcare quality and safety, you know, something that is totally irrelevant at the current moment, right? Like we don't get to worry about that at all. Um, so the things I look at in that domain are around organizational culture, specifically how to, does a culture of safety that prioritizes safety relative to other interests, you know, get created and sustained. And some of the things I look at are really team dynamics around mindfulness. So team level mindfulness. So not so much the individual kind of meditative kind of contemplative practice, but how can we interact with each other more mindfully such that we can detect and correct errors and unexpected events more swiftly. Yeah. So obviously that's something that's important in the moment. And the other thing about healthcare delivery and kind of delivering high quality safe care that's of great interest to me is how do we keep, you know, sustain the workforce Right? Like, how do we make sure the people who are delivering the care are in a safe workplace for themselves? Not, and not just physically safe, although clearly right now that's critically important, but also emotionally and mentally and psychologically safe. Yes. So the thing I study there over the past few years is with Laura McClelland at Virginia Commonwealth University is about compassion practices. Mm-hmm. So how can organizations systematize compassion such that it's not just saying to employees, you know, care delivery folks who are, you know, facing unprecedented levels of burning right now. You know, it's not just you figure out, take a resilience training and figure it out for yourself or uh, engage in some, you know, just just meditate a little bit or uh, be more self-compassionate. But actually, what is the organization doing to kind of intervene in specific ways to help people process the traumas they're encountering using things like uh, 
forums called Schwartz Rounds, where people like talk about not just the event itself, if there's a, you know, a death or some other very traumatic event, but also how we're processing it emotionally and how we're going to get through this as people as well. So, you know, intervening in those kind of ways. And then the last bit that's uh, been newer in the past three, four years has been on autism at work and specifically making uh, organizations more inclusive for neurodiversity. And obviously, as you know, that's something that's very personally important uh, to me, given my family. But uh, it's also a big issue out in the world because 80 per, up to 80% of the people on the autism spectrum are either underemployed, underemployed or unemployed, which is just a tragic uh, waste of a lot of talent, right? Like in people not able to do things that, you know, they're just systematic barriers to getting and staying in the workforce. So the kind of things that I'm looking at are how can you make organizational cultures be less maybe about organizational fit and more about how do we get new contributions from different types of people? Because neurodiversity is all about difference, different ways of thinking. So, and some of the things we're working on there is about kind of organizational research, but also technologies. So how can we use things like virtual interviewing systems to take down some of the pressures of in-person in interviewing? Yeah. And how can we set up interviews in a way so it's actually accessing people's talents, not just causing them to stress out? So in our virtual interview system, people uh, wear sensors so we can sense stress levels and know exactly which question sets wow. off the stress level and also might cause them to break eye contact and also make work sanitizers. So we have natural language processing kind of engine on top of this. So it's some real cool tech. Um, that's kind of intersecting with my interest in organizations and making it work. Yeah. So those are the three sets of things that yeah. work. Yeah. Way cool. I um, um, I don't know if you know this. Uh, take you back to business school for a second. When when I was your student was um, one of the projects. Like when we started out, you you had all of us kind of read and write like this little short synopsis every single day. You're like, hey, just a little bit, write a little bit, and uh, it's super fascinating that. For someone like me, where I am today, where I write 1.6 million emails a month, <laughs> right. versus at that point, I would stress out writing one paragraph on yep. something that I had read. Yep. And you may not know this background. I actually like talked to my dad. My dad was a professor of English literature at college. And I talked to my dad. I was like, hey, I got, you know, my professors want me to like write a synopsis. And I think it's just his accountability thing of me having to read something. But I'm writing this one paragraph and it totally sucks. It takes me four hours to write and it's taking me longer to write a paragraph than to read like three right. case studies. Right. And right. so my dad said to me, which is when kind of I had this first conversation with you, he's like, well, talk to him. And I was like, well, what do you mean? This is just a, I have to deliver a deliverable. He's like, no, if it's stressing you out, yeah. you should have the conversation with him. And, um, for, for those that are listening, I want to fast forward on the learning there, right? So the learning that, that I learned kind of my first year at business school was I never believed in thinking in drafts. And, and you said something which was very cool to me once. You're like, hey, at the end of the day, when you're turning in a deliverable of a paper or whatever, it just ends up being your 16th draft. Like, that's all it is. It's not your final paper. It's just your 16th draft. Mm -hmm. And... I was like, well, what is that? Like, really? And I, and he's like, what are you trying to do? He's like, Sean, what are you trying to do? You're trying to give me your perfect draft the first time? Like, that's weird. And while it logically made sense, mm -hmm. I don't think we are, um, I don't think we as society have been given the permission to think in drafts. Right. 
And right. I'd love for your kind of, because even in, in your research work, there's so, there's draft, draft reviews and peer reviews and all oh, of that stuff yeah. that happens. Yes. Yes. Um, from, from, from the, from a very practical perspective, uh, if you're talking to like a, an entrepreneur or business owner, I don't think the average entrepreneur or business owner even gets somebody to review a sensitive email once from right. a draft perspective. So I'd love your thoughts around like, this concept of maybe thinking in drafts a little bit to, to just sharpen your thinking. Yeah, I think I I think it's a it's a great point, and I also want to just praise you personally because I think your deliberate focus on that is rare among MBA students who don't think that you know this even as with as much writing as we do, there's a practice and a method and a technique to it, and you can be deliberate about it. Right? Okay, I struggle with this part, so what can I do? to get me on a better trajectory of writing about it, right? You know, so I think I think this idea of thinking in drafts is great. And it's also it's also made hard because I think sometimes so much of what should be a draft goes out into the world as a tweet or a LinkedIn post or something like that, right? And then there's a reaction, oh well I didn't really think it through. So everything feels more fine, right? And it doesn't feel like we have the license to be provisional. Uh, so you know, finding those. So I think just re, you know, as I told you long ago, I think just viewing it as everything is just an ongoing process, right? Like even a published paper is a, that's what I'm thinking now, right? Like that's what these, this set of data tell me. But if I think that I, that's something that I have to permanently defend, even when things change, I'm not doing science, right? Like I'm not revising, but I think you need to update your thinking. And updating your thinking is okay. And that well, where we get into trouble is where we think, well, we can't be inconsistent with what we thought in the past. Well, if the situation changes, the data changes, we've got to move in that direction. And the essence of the stuff that I do around mindfulness, when I'm doing talking about interpersonal mindfulness and mindfulness and communication, it's all about recognizing that whatever we have is a situated understanding of the moment. And that's something that we need to keep updating. So when we talk about mindfulness in teams, so healthcare teams that are really reliable, that make very few errors, or if they do make them, they recover super quickly. What do they do? Well, they're, they're, what they are, are is they're reluctant to simplify interpretation. So they keep more ideas in play. That's this kind of provisional idea, right? Like I'm keeping a lot of drafts going. And they're also sensitive to operations, which means I'm trying to integrate the best understanding I have at this moment. It's not a permanent understanding. If I think it's a permanent understanding and, hey, we're great right now, so we'll be great in perpetuity, that's when I know bad things are going to happen. So the people that lock in and say, we're highly reliable, or, wow, this is the perfect draft, this is the perfect email, this is the perfect document, uh, that's when you're in trouble. Yeah. Is there, um, how much of this do you think, Tim, is uh, the, the lack of a, a support system? And what I mean by that mm-hmm. is... Um, you know, so so my I, especially during one of our last businesses, my 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 partner of twenty years, uh, just a phenomenal guy. He's a, he's a, like a father to me, even though he thinks that he's like my little brother, which is hilarious, right? Uh, and and he's a he's he's an attorney, but he's a very he, he he realized that there's a kindness that comes with good writing, and that was the one thing that he taught me. He was like, "Hey, you're writing like a boss." 
Mm-hmm. No one wants to listen mm-hmm. to you. No one wants, no one wants a bossy email. And I never, to me, I was like, hey, this is my quote position in the organization. So I should write mm-hmm. a position specific mm-hmm. status, whatever. And he's he the, the, what he said to me was he he would take my email and be like, hey, just you can change four words on this and make it so much kinder. And I got better, just like I would send. Even though, Tim, I owed you, as part of a class deliverable, one email, you were so kind to say, hey, I'll give you feedback and go revise it. And mm-hmm. if you will write the four drafts, I will give you the feedback to revise right. the four drafts. Right. And so my, my partner always, and I, I, I think I got lucky with, you know, having a mentor like you and having a part business partner like my partner, Peter, mm-hmm. who I can, without judgment, send him something, even a happy Thanksgiving email to the firm, I... It's, I'm like, this is going out to a thousand people from me. Can, mm-hmm. can I, can you just like look it over once to make sure mm-hmm. it's not, and he's like, Sean, you're a little emotionally charged on this one. Are you okay? And I'm like, I never saw that. Right. So my question for you is, I, I don't know if everyone has a support system for, to have somebody, you know, kind of do that. How does, and then we're talking very specifically with writing. It can be with video. It can be with whatever. It can be with anything. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah. but I think that in today's writing, especially, um, my writing got better just because I was able to get someone else to give me yep. some feedback on it. And how does but you also took the feedback too, right? Like you also treated it as, okay, when I hear it, I'm going to try to incorporate it, right? Like you could take that if, if you have the boss mindset, even with this outside person say, all right, well, uh, they just don't get it. it. I don't believe that that really says that. Or if I give you feedback and I mean, like, yeah, what does it really matter? It's a pass fail little item anyway, right? Like, I'm just going to set it out, right? Like, yeah. Uh, so how, how does somebody, how does the, the lone kind of lone gunslinger business owner today, yep. how does that person think in drafts without putting themselves in a tough position? Yeah, and I think you're right about reaching out because everybody, even if you're the lone business owner, you probably have people because all it takes, like you're describing, is somebody who's outside of your particular head. Right. Like to give you that kind of feedback, to be that sounding board. And there are those kind of places and there are resources like for small business people or whatever, like incubators and those kind of. That's why those things exist is to provide a mechanism for feedback, for coaching, for growth, for collegiality, for relationships and for all those kind of things. I mean, I think the biggest thing they did, you know, you were. You said, you know, I was kind to you by, you know, reading and commenting on those four versions or whatever, but it was, it took you asking. That's all it took, right? Like most people don't ask about something that is, so asking for some feedback on something that's tractable, like you can give me coaching on this. It won't take too much of your time. I will take seriously what you say. And I really value your opinion, right? Like, and I'm trying to work on this. So you conveyed all those things. And I think that's the essence of, being able to get that kind of developmental support because everybody has people in their life who can provide some measure of that, right? right? And it's just the saying, here's why I'm coming to you, right? Like I value your opinion. I value, you know, I think you have a special skill at this and I'm not going to take up too much of your time and I'll do this, but, and I'm also happy to do it for you, right? right. Like, and I think because you, even if it's hard for us to maybe judge our own writing all the time, yeah. Uh, we can still, it's hard for everybody to judge their own writing. So we can offer that back and just being an outsider to it. Are you sure? Like I even did that today. So my wife, Jen, I was going to send an email that I probably shouldn't have, I was in the sense. So I read it to her and she's like, I think you can just sit on that one. And you know, that, and she was right. 
And, and so I didn't send it, um, you know, but just having that person on the outside, sometimes it's not to do it. Sometimes it's changing those few words and something where I'm getting too boss in tone, yeah. you know, and I think, I think it's reflective of good practice in general, which is trying to engage in perspective taking, right? Trying to get that empathic understanding of others. How is this going to be received? Because we know our intention. You yeah. don't know how it's going to be received, right? So that having that outsider just give us that feedback on writing or presentation or whatever it is, is helpful because it, it shows us how people take it, right? Yeah. And, that's, and that's fundamental to so many things in organizations. The, you know, the compassion stuff I do is all about that, right? Like it starts with an empathic understanding of, oh, somebody else is in suffering. Let me learn more. And mindfulness, it's about, hey, there, at least my version of studying mindfulness, it's like, something's not quite right in this system. I'm worried something's going to go wrong and something's going to blow up, right? Yeah. Like, so it's, you know, trying to get outside of your head and to take the perspective of something else or someone else. And, and, and Tim, I, I don't know, one thing that I, um, my, so my business partner, one of the things that I learned from him was his writing is on point. Like he's yep. one of those where mm-hmm. you can write a four paragraph email, he will write a one line response and it is filled with so much warmth, grace and and, and it's perfect. Like it's a perfect one-liner every time. Right. And normally if someone wrote a one-liner, I'd be like, I can't believe Vogue's gave me a one-liner back. Right. <laughs> what a jerk. <laughs> but, 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 but when Peter writes a one-liner, you're like, that was perfect. Yep. And, but even though what I learned from him was we, as a partnership, the three, our, our three partners, we decided that no email will go out all hands unless the partners reviewed it. Mm-hmm. Not, and and so it became so even peter would send me his email saying hey i wrote this draft what do you think and i'm like dude you got to chill out he's like oh i think i was angry on that one but he was open to the the drafts too yep. i think that that allowed me to be op- more open to the drafts as well and that start and when you start to do that as leadership of the organization what does that do it starts to set what's culture of the organization we're working in this together because we want to get things right. We want to convey what our intention is. We want it to be received in a particular way. So we're going to put in the effort to do that right. And we're going to listen to and critique each other. And it's okay It's okay to be wrong, right? And to get feedback and to update and change. And that's how you convey the thinking and drafts because everybody in that organization is looking to the three of you yeah. for cues about what's this organization about? What is it value, support, and reward? And by saying, you know, we're going to be really diligent about how we communicate. And we want to do that with kindness, with grace, but also with focus and intention and strategic, you know, a specific strategy, right? You want to do all those things. And it's hard to do all those things in written communication yeah. or in verbal communication. Yeah. Um, you, one of the, one of, one of my favorite classes was doing negotiation stuff with you. Cause yeah. I, I, the big scale, and I, I'm, I'm using this, when I was thinking about talking with you today, the, the draft thing was everything for me because mm-hmm. I, I think it can, it can, it even jumps into the negotiation world in a lot of Absolutely. ways as well. Right. Yes. Yes. And, um, when people say everything's a negotiation, the one thing that I learned was that it is actually a capability. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't think it was, I was like, Oh, some people are just good salespeople. I'm like, well, no, I can learn some, I can mechanically learn uh, to negotiate better. And then, and uh, the biggest win for me on that, Tim, was there was this exercise, I think early on where like I lost, like based on who got what chip, I was like, whatever happens here, I'm going to lose in this negotiation. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize, I was like, this sucks. Like, why am I like, well, I lost, this is stupid. <laughs> and, and then I realized that it was not about the losing. 
and there were some cards that you are dealt and you deal, mm-hmm. it, it, you, it, you, you think in drafts to figure out the best possible outcome. And um, there was no way for me to win in one of those. And, right. and so I thought that was super fascinating. And I didn't realize that negotiation was a capability. I thought you were just mm-hmm. either good at it or not good at it. Mm-hmm. And there's some mechanical things in place that you can at least prep for. Yep. And I'd love to kind of, uh, you know, have you talk through a couple of those things. And the first thing sure. is more, uh, I always talk to people about, hey, like the Batman and the Zopa stuff, right? Without yeah. that, you sure. literally have no, like, what are you doing? You don't even know what you're, what you're doing. Right, because right. Right. if you don't know that, what do you know, right? Like, yeah. how do you know how to make a decision? Yep. So I'd love for you to maybe just, um, for folks that have not had the, yep. some, some mechanical understanding of, hey, there's a, there's a few pieces that are in place just yep. for thinking tool perspective if you could just say hey what is bat now what is open how do you how do you kind of enter a negotiating conversation with those in mind absolutely so i want to link it back to something you just said prior to that with just thinking about being a good or bad negotiator some people are just good at it some people are just bad at it and i think it's because of the mental image we have of what a negotiator is we think it's somebody who goes into a situation bullies somebody into what they want right like they they uh you know just give in to my perspective. So that's a problem. That's a really narrow way to conceptualize it. And you can see why a lot of people would feel uncomfortable in negotiation situations because they don't see themselves as that way. They're not that way. So they don't want to behave like that. They want to avoid dealing with people who behave like that. And then also with that kind of mindset, it becomes an act of persuasion. So it's not about drafts. It's not about thinking in drafts. I don't need to know what the other side thinks, values, cares about. I just need to go in there and bulldoze it. And both of those things get in the way, especially with things, you know, the kind of complexity of negotiations you've done, but in, even in pretty basic negotiations, that breaks down. Yeah. So now let's get into the, the kind of the tools of the trade and some of the basics. Yeah. So the things going into a negotiation that you want to be thinking about is obviously you want to know where you stand and why, right? So where you stand is, at what point do I walk away from this deal? Does it become, does it need to be better than X, you know, whatever price, you know, buying a car, thinking about that kind of thing. So there's a point at which you would rather walk away and just not make that deal happen. So going in, knowing that, being clear on what your bottom line is, we call that a reservation price, you know, a point at which you walk away. And now what helps shape that, that doesn't just come out of like your imagination. You know, you're thinking about what the market is, what you're, but it's really about what your alternatives are. And that's where this idea of BATNA is. So what's your best alternative to a negotiated agreement? That's BATNA. And so BATNA is what you get when you walk away. And sometimes that answer is, I get nothing. Nothing, Right? So so some of the most important things you can do in a negotiation sometimes are things before you get into the negotiation itself, like generating more alternatives and more possibilities. Because when you do that, you can make your reservation price, you know, if, uh, higher, lower, depending on which side of the negotiation you're on, um, you know, so you can bolster your own position. So you can be more confident in your walk away and you can demand more. And then you, so you want to think about that for yourself and you want to know that, but you also want to start thinking about it for the other side, the other party in the negotiation. What do I think their alternatives might be? If I was, if I was them, how would I be thinking about this negotiation? So you try to put yourself in their perspective. You know, so this kind of other-oriented, perspective-taking kind of perspective. So what are their alternatives? And what do I think that means for when they walk away? So in between those two walk-away points, 
is the realm of the possible in a negotiation, which we call the zone of potential agreement or the ZOPA, right? So between the point I walk away, if I'm negotiating with you, the point you walk away, that's that zone. That's the realm of the possible. But that doesn't tell us where we'll end up within there, right? Like that depends on a whole host of other factors. But you can see even going in and thinking about those basics of that reservation price ZOPA, my understanding is only going to be provisional. How could I possibly know everything you know going into the negotiation? Now, I want to prep it, right? So I want to have some priors, but those priors are things that I either want to confirm or disconfirm in conversation with you before an offer ever gets put on the table. Yeah. Like I want to understand things from your perspective to help to better know what you know. You're not going to reveal, yeah, I'll go all the way here and here's my walkway. I'm never going to know that but at least I want to be closer to, I want to figure out maybe what the limit is, you know, what your actual alternatives are without asking you, hey, what are your alternatives? Cause you're gonna, that's gonna put you on the defensive and make you invent things. So, um, so it's about, you know, prepping yourself, thinking through the other side and using that as the starting point for the conversation. And the interesting part is, uh, uh, this is not, not that this is not a complex thing. I, I don't think this takes a lot of time. It just, no. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a posted conversation with yourself. It's totally right. That's right? totally right. Yep. And, um, because I, and I, and I actually believe that for a lot of entrepreneurs who have, who feel like every conversation is in the gray, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, you know, for several of the CEOs I mentor too, like it's the, 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 the lack of clarity of is, is what causes the stress. And so if you just say, Hey, listen, you're stressed out about this because you have no idea how to even go into this discussion because you have no idea where this is going to go. So let's prep a little bit and they don't know what to prep. And I think you just, you kind of giving them what the the, the points are for prep at least allows you to say, my first few questions are going to illuminate whether these points are even true. Right. And that's right. Because with, and without that systematic prep, you know, sometimes you can do well in a negotiation. Sometimes you can do poorly in a negotiation and your only explanation then becomes without doing the prep is just like, well, I was, I was tough. I wasn't tough. And right. They're really superficial explanations instead of, oh, I didn't have sufficient alternatives. Oh, I didn't think through what their alternatives are, right? Like you don't have a framework for even understanding it. And you're right. It's not ultra complicated, but it's just about having the discipline around it to do that kind of pre-work, to do that prep, to, to be able to go in there and be consistently confident, right? To overcome some of those kind of mental models we said people have about negotiation and to be able to, you know, advocate for something clear, but also have the confidence to know that I can update my understanding and I'm not going to get rolled because I have my alternatives. I have my walk away. I know kind of what the range is and, and you have a lot more confidence in the negotiation. So the one other thing that I think is in parallel to this, so BATNA, reservation price, the ZOPA, that's all important to understand. But I think for yourself, and again, for the other party, what you also want to start thinking through is why might they care about that? Why might be there, you know, what's the underlying interest? Because a reservation price, a walkaway point is a position. So at this point, I will walk away. But underneath every position we have are some interests, you know, why we do what we do, what we're really trying to accomplish. You know, I care about more money because it gives me more status. And it's really the status thing I'm caring about. So if you could give me status without giving me more money, I'm happy, right? Like a, like and, a title and I, in a job or something like that. Yeah, You got it. That's right. That's right. And I might be real readily able to give you more status. 
but I might struggle to find more money, right? Like, so it's, so it's something that's of high value to you, low cost to me. And so by sometimes getting underneath to the why, it opens up more possibilities for more creative resolutions for things that might seem like, you know, a pure kind of zero sum game, and, you know, or as we talk about it as a distributive negotiation where it's just a pure win-lose. Yeah. The, um, the one thing that I, um, I learned, which, which I'd, I'd love for folks to kind of uh, take in when they're listening is while this was helpful in the initial negotiation, I uh, figured out something interesting, Tim was, I couldn't ask for help unless I did the prep. Mm-hmm. So I'd be like, okay, uh, I'm going to go negotiate the sale of this business. Here's left-hand side of, you know, very simple left-hand side of the sheet of paper is my position. Right-hand side is theirs. I'm just writing some thoughts, right? I would walk away at this price. I think that they would not do the, deal, do the deal at this price because they can't get some debt financing. Here are the reasons why. Now I can actually go to a mentor and say, or a coach or a business partner and be like, hey, am I thinking about this right? Because right. if, if I didn't have that artifact, if you will, mm-hmm. they have no way to right. think with me. You got it. And and got it. I I realized for me that um, I almost, the, the pre-work was not for me walking into the appointment and confident. The pre-work was I couldn't get any help. Yep. <laughs> and, and, and that's forced me to do more pre-work, which is like, I actually, and, and so now if I came to you and I said, Hey, Tim, I want to run this by you. You're like, Sean, you're all over the place. Uh, but if I said, Hey, Tim, I've done some work. Let me walk you through my thinking. Here's a document. Yep. Yep. And now you're like, Oh, I see the holes right away. I can give you some better guidance right. around this. Right. Right. So, These two things or whatever. Yeah. And, and so, so the, the question for you is, um, so my, I think a lot more people are ready, willing, and able to kind of serve as a either situational mentor, if you will, or a or a general mentor, because they're like, all right, Tron's not coming to me with like unfiltered, bogus thinking most of the time, yeah. uh, and I think that's helped a lot of my help gather more mentors around me. And have you Absolutely. seen have you seen that, or have you seen something like that? Like when someone walks up to you, how 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 would you coach someone on doing something like that? Yeah. So I think that's the biggest thing when, when doing outreach to people who you might want help from or want mentorship from. I mean, I think the thing that paralyzes people from doing something that's actually helpful, and I've certainly experienced this on my own when people are asking me about research topics, hey, I really like this paper. What do you think about blah, 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 is um, they don't know how to be helpful, right? And if you're thinking it hasn't been done and you don't have the draft, because what you're describing, again, is thinking in drafts, right? Like you have to have a draft to go to somebody with. Otherwise, how do they help, right? Like, how do they how do they access it, right? Like, what's their way in? How do they even know if they can be helpful? Because I think oftentimes people want to, especially if it's focused, and especially if it's an area where they feel like they can be helpful. Uh, but when it's when it's more amorphous and open ended, it's I people uh, I think people on the receiving end of the request start to feel like this is going to be a lot of time, and I don't know what to do. Right. right. So it starts to trigger for me. Oh boy, I'm already stressed out enough because of all the other things I have to do. And this person's just going to add to it because they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and I don't even know, even if I meet with them for an hour or two hours or whatever, am I even going to be able to provide any help? And then I'll just leave feeling like I wasted my time and I wasted their time. And I'll feel bad about myself because I don't know how to help them. Yeah. Right. You know, so where you have things that are more focused and you can bring somebody in in a way through an email, or whatever, however you reach out to them. 
hey, I'm thinking about this and I could use help on this aspect of it. Can I run, you know, run it by you, kind of my strategy? And I think, you know, I know you're really good at thinking about contingent contracts or something like that, because that might be a way, you know, because we were talking about like a constraint of financing or something like that. How might we be able to work around? How might we be able to structure something different? I know you think about that really well. You know, can you help me? Um, you know, then it gives people a way in. So I see that in my field when people are asking about research or advice with programs or things like that. It's about, you know, reaching out in a way, hey, I really like this paper. Here's this aspect that I like. Are you thinking about doing any more about this? Here's what I was thinking. You know, you go in with kind of a focused ask where you, it's clear you've done your homework on that person and you're articulating how they can be helpful. And it's not an overly sweeping demand. Yeah. Let's, let's, let me ask you a couple of tactical stuff on the negotiation. Sure. So a lot of people ask yeah, me, it's the, um, uh, who comes to the table first? Like, is there a, is there any research or thought process around, um, it, take a situation of buying a business, buying a house, whatever, like yeah. is the first yeah. offer, who, who comes up first? And I know you've talked about the anchoring thought process mm -hmm. around it. Is there any research around that first offer? Who comes up first? Is it, you get the gift of going second. What are your thoughts around who goes? Yeah, so, so I do believe the research on anchoring is pretty compelling, right? Like so that initial information, people are influenced by it and people tend to adjust insufficiently afterwards, <laughs> right? Like it, it shifts their perceptions. So when we talk about that zone of potential agreement uh, by the reservation prices of both sides, you know, that first offer can change your perception of that whole thing. And if they give a crazy, you know, if you're, you're the seller and somebody gives you a real low ball offer, you might think, oh, well, they really can't pay any more than that, right? Like, and it shifts your thinking. So I think in terms of, but in terms of the more qualitative aspect of what, it, what signal are you sending by reaching out or things like that? I think the biggest problem with that is how it affects our own thinking. I'm in a position of vulnerability, right? By reaching out for, so I don't want to do that. So as long as you're not wrapped up in, your own thoughts about, oh, I came to them or they came to me, now I can roll them. You know, like that's the wrong question, right? The right question is, okay, what do I need to get out of such a, a negotiation? Why do I need this? And what do I think, for, you know, what's gonna make it a workable deal for them? And let's, let's try to get to that destination because it's really about a joint problem solving activity and less about what's the signal that's sent. And I think sometimes when people worry about the signal that's sent by, do I approach first or whatever? If it's something you want to do, initiate it, right? Like if they can't give you a workable deal, you're going to walk away. That's why all that prep matters. You know? Right. I, I remember my partner saying um, this to me once. He goes, uh, we're going to get all, we have no idea what offer we're going to get for the business. He's like, Sean, what if you got something under this number? And you know what I said to him? I was like, I'd be freaking mad. <laughs> and he's like, good. I'm glad we got that reaction out right now. And good chance that that's going to happen. So when you get something like that, here's what we do. Yep. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm like, here's what we do. We have a playbook for when I, when you know you're going to get mad, you say, this is the email we're going to write. Heck, Sharon, write it right now. Yes. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, I really appreciate this offer. These are the three things we want to talk about. And I'm like, no. And he goes, you will say some, you are going to be driving somewhere. You're going to get this in your email. You're going to read this on your phone. You're going to get mad and you're going to reply with something's totally stupid. Let's not do that. And that was super interesting for me to say, oh, wow. He, he, um, he, he took this emotional reaction and he framed it 
in the conversation, which, which was really great. I would have never thought to do that. I, I, we were just mad. And so even, even in the, I love real estate. It's so funny, Tim, I've gone to this. I've, I found that there are like three examples that you can always use that people seem to connect with. There's always a, Hey, buy or sell a house. People connect with that. Yep. And there is, which is really controversial. This dating example, like they, people totally connect with, okay, you can't say something stupid to him or her. Yep. And the third is like six pack abs example. Like it's amazing. Like everybody wants six pack abs, right? Yes. So, so the, 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 if you tell somebody, Hey, it's going to take you 14 years to get six pack abs. Like you're not selling any product. Right. You got to be a little bit more compelling when you come to that. Um, And and so my, 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 my question on the, the, the anchoring stuff for you is, is there a way to say, if they come up with this, do we respond this way? Like, do you do a little, would you suggest a little game theory around it or how do you think through that? Yeah. So I think, so I'll give you two answers to that. So one, I I just want to hit on that really insightful point you just made about that emotional transformation and, you know, that you, I'm going to be mad, right? Right. Because one thing we know in a negotiation context, they're emotionally salient and activating kind of context, right? Like, because they feel like there's their identity threatening in some kind of ways. I'm a good negotiator or a bad negotiator and all these kind of things. So people Uh, derive a lot from these types of conversations. So going in, we know we're already in a spot where we can be activated by small things, right? And when you, when you put big money stakes, I mean, there are fMRI studies that show that, you know, your, your brain's going haywire, right? When that's happening, right? Like things are really activated and it's easy to get triggered by specific things. And what we know when people get triggered in that kind of way, any kind of creative resolution to a negotiation goes completely out of the way. Yeah. Right. Because you start to inter- interpret things in a way, oh, this person's being adversarial. They're attacking me. And it's not because they're just trying to get a better deal. It's because they're a bad person. And yeah. that shuts down communication and closes it off. And then you escalate. Right. Like so that kind of dynamic unfolds yeah. uh, really quickly as a result. So with anchoring, anchoring can generate the same kind of thing. So if somebody just throws out a wild anchor in a negotiation, it can make you mad because it's like, are they insulting me? What are they doing? How dare they, right? So I think the strategy that works, that is most robust, I mean, you can certainly do things like threaten to walk away or, you know, how dare you or, but I think the more constructive thing is to say, hold on, let's take a step back. Yeah. And let's think about why that offer is even in the universe of the, pos- of the possible yeah. You know, because yeah. let me tell you about what I need to get out of this deal. And you keep it at the level of the kind of the abstraction. What are my interests? What do I care about? What's important to me? What do I need to achieve in order to make this workable for me? And then let's talk about that with you. Because sometimes it means there hasn't been enough groundwork. You may have done the prep on your own or with your team in advance. But then when you come to the negotiation and somebody throws out a wild offer, it's activating in some kind of way. Maybe it's a time to step back and reset the negotiation in terms of process. So how are we going to work together and how do we get underneath what's really motivating that offer? And sometimes they might just have been testing you or bluffing or trying to see if they could get a, just roll you, right? And and by forcing it back on, well, why? You know, we can talk about numbers, but I want to understand where that comes from because it's very different from my understanding. So let's get on the same page in terms of understanding. Then we can start working toward a deal, right? So that's one way to blow it up without without, you know, having to do like you would do if you're buying a car, right? Like, you're just like, I'm, I'm out of here. How dare you? And then they're like, well, wait, come back, come back. It's the end of the month. We really need to close, you know, right? Yeah. So what you're saying is, hey, if, if you get something out of left field, 
um, yeah. ask, ask them to say, hey, well, can you, can you explain? I, I didn't walk understand. Me through, walk me through how you arrive at that, yeah. right? And you can even add in, you know, based on where we need to be and what the way I'm interpreting the market or whatever, you know, whatever the kind of macro context of the negotiation is, my understanding is very different. So help me understand from your perspective. Yeah. And, and that takes the temperature down in the room, right? Because it's like, I'm trying to understand your perspective. I want to make sure I hear you. And then as they're laying it out, you can do a lot of kind of mirroring kind of conversation. So let me just make sure that I'm following. So from your perspective, you think this, blah, blah, blah. You know, and then you, they, when people feel like they're being heard in that kind of way, they start to open up. So it's the opposite of that emotional transformation. I'm mad. So I'm going to take them down because they're an evil person ruining my experience of negotiation, right? Like I said, it starts to be like, oh, we're collaborating here. We're trying to figure, we're trying to solve a complex problem together, right? right? And we both, our interests need to get met. Otherwise the deal doesn't get done. I think that even the, even the language patterns are on, so help me understand this. Yes. And then yeah. they work through that. Then you're like, okay, so in your, so, so just so, just so I understand from your perspective, blah, blah, blah. So now one, you soften up to help me understand. And two, now it's like they feel heard. So at least you're, at least you come to some understanding to get to the next kind of point in the discussion, right? Exactly. And by saying from your perspective, you're making sure you, you got it in their words and you're not putting an aspersion, right? Like from your perspective, you're an idiot, you know, (laughs) from from my perspective, you're an idiot, right? You know, uh, but instead it's, I'm trying to, you know, appreciatively hear your words, but then it also opens up for, well, from my perspective, right? right. Like you can get back, right? And, and then we could say, okay, there seems to be some difference. What underlies that difference? Right. You know, the different perceptions about the future and how that's going to unfold, what the upside is or what the downside risk is. And then you're in a more nuanced conversation where you can get things done. Yeah. Um, mechanically speaking, have do you have any guidance around, especially with the, um, with, with, executive MBA students who you, who are, that you teach, who are like, you know, leaders of organizations who are dealing in the gray often. Mm-hmm. What is your suggestion around just negotiating conversations maybe regarding when there's money, especially when there's money involved? Have you seen a, uh, is it more beneficial to do it live? Uh, is it more beneficial to do it over email? Is it, are, do you have benefits on one over the other? Is it live and then reconfirming over email? What what have you found mechanically that has been? It's a great question. And, and that's something too, where I, I suspect we'll start to get some interesting research over the coming years about how that's maybe evolving, given that we're all operating in a very different way right now. But, but typically, the risk of the email negotiation, right? We said these are emotionally fraught to begin with. They're complicated. We just talked about needing to think in drafts. Well, if you're you know, sending out draft one as the negotiation email, probably not going to end well, right? Like Because all those nuances of tone and the subtlety, and there's not ways to soften as readily. Like yeah. we were just saying about how you would do that verbally to get to someplace that's more nuanced and sophisticated. So I would I strongly encourage people to do a more... Uh, as a Dick Daft, so as a you know, a faculty member at, at Vanderbilt talked about rich media. So media richness means you, you get more cues, there's more nuance. So when you do full video, that's better than just email. And when you do face-to-face, you get even more, right? Like, so there are all these kind of things about you want to be able to, and you can do things synchronously, and that all that all just makes it easier to come to a shared understanding. I think 
Emails are hard for shared understandings, especially about complex issues, no matter how skilled a writer you are, because it just loses some things and you could catch people reading it at the wrong moment because you don't know when they're going to access it, right? They might access it just after they've had an argument with a spouse, right? Like, and they're going to, no matter what you said and how carefully you did, how dare, what? They're asking for more, right? Even if you had all kinds of great reasons. So I think that in person, I, I strongly encourage that if that's a possibility. And if that's not, do something like you know, Zoom or video. Uh, and if that's not even possible, even phone is better because it's real time. There's chance to adjust, yeah. right? Um, and you know, to learn and to engage in a more fuller, uh, fuller conversation because you know, in order to engage in a negotiation conversation via email, you have to have all the information you need. Yeah. Right? Like in, and to be pretty certain about it. Do you, and it's just hard to do. And I realize for efficiency, sometimes people have to do it. And, and that's where the work that you were describing earlier about thinking in drafts and getting feedback from your people and making sure not just the substance is right, but also the tone and what it conveys is a kind is all those kind of things matter. So I think the, the lesson I pulled out from that was if you can do the synchronous conversation where you're actually talking live in some way, yep. and there is hopefully we get to some, some agreements of sort. And then we use email to email or some form of written word to memorialize. Yes, absolutely. Right. That kind of lays out the right. Because I mean, in this fact, varies culture to culture, too. So like some cultures don't like to, you know, we made an agreement. We clearly will are committed to it. Right. But I think in the U.S. specifically, you know, it's it's helpful to have that kind of institutionalizing, formalizing, agreeing to how we're going to carry this out. Right. right, Like that's something that needs to be in writing in some kind of way, for sure. Right. You know, because sometimes we can agree to it in principle and we might have very different understandings of the principle, right? Mm-hmm. And then the implementation falls apart. So what's some language pattern guidance around, say you and I have been talking about um, about a deal and we it looks like we have agreed on some kind of next steps and terms. Mm-hmm. And let's say, Tim, you were going to take the ball and say, okay, well, I'm going to quote, memorialize this in some way yeah. and, and then and then we'll flip it to counsel or whatever mm-hmm. um, what is some what are some language patterns around saying hey we've, we've done this hard work of coming right. to this agreement right um, how do we say all right Sharon now I'm gonna let me let me recap to see if I under like what would be that what would be that it, but it's exactly that right like let let me just make sure we're in agreement on these points so let's kind of walk through what we've detailed in this conversation, right? Like what is step one? Okay, we're doing X, we're doing Y, we're doing Z over this time period. Is that, does that reflect your understanding of the, what we've agreed to, the conversation we've just had and what am I missing, right? Like, so keeping it open-ended with, you know, what's, what am I missing? Is there anything that we didn't, that's, that's not in the proposal or it's worded in a way that's you're not comfortable with? Let's just make sure we've got the understanding before we turn it over to kind of, you know, formalizing it in contractual language. Are we, are we in agreement about how this is playing out here? Yeah. We've done so much hard, right. Cause we've, we've done all this hard work together and we both think we've got a deal that works for us. Right. Let's just make sure we have the same understanding, you know, before we yeah. do that, the detail work. Right. So, so mechanically I, it, you know, people will be like, well, that's, that's interesting that Sean and Tim are talking about this, but in, in a real in real world, it doesn't work that way. Or, well, let's let's bring it to life for a second. Let's say you and I are talking about something, Tim, and uh, there's five points just that that we're work, working towards. And say we agree on three out of the five. Mm-hmm. This conversation, mm-hmm. how would you how would you kind of 
take the win on the three mm-hmm. and, and set up the conversation for the next two. How, how would you kind of frame that? Mm-hmm. Right. That we need to, it's something we need to revisit. Right. Right. You know, so, so you're saying, okay, we've got, we've got some really good. Well, so the, the hard thing, one of the challenges about separating out the issues too, is sometimes, you know, where we're able to get our best deals on really complex things is when we bundle them all together. Right. Uh, you know, because, because then we can see how they might combine in unique ways and sometimes segmenting out. We, if we leave the, the two hard ones for the end, it might change our understanding of the three other ones and it might cause us to reopen those. So that's one of the risks with that. But I think if we got a point, got to a point where we were, you know, 60% of the way there, but we know we need more to get to the end. I think what I would spend the end of that conversation doing, well, it seems like we're moving in the right direction, right? Like we're, we're making some progress together. We have some, you know, at least agreement in principle. I think we both understand you know, where we need to go, but maybe in the interim for these last couple of issues that are still outstanding, let's spend some time right now thinking about how we would even go about wow. reaching a resolution, you know, like, so turn it into a process question about how do we get somewhere on those last two, Got okay? It. You know, rather than saying, you know, let's each come up with an idea for the last two. Like, what's the process for even getting to something that's going to be workable for the last two? You know, what do we think we did well here that was able to resolve these others? How do we know that we've got the rest of it or we're ready to talk again? What do we need to figure out? What's the, what are the missing elements? Is it some data? Is it a perspective of somebody who's outside this transaction? You know, what is it? Yeah, that's really cool because there? now you're saying, hey, I've got some out of the three. I, we, we, we move in the right direction. Because I think I think even just clarity on language patterns helps a lot of people, right? Just- oh, it totally does. I mean, right, because you need to break it down to that. Because in, like you said at the outset, when we were talking about Batten and reservation price and Zopa, like that's, you know, pretty high level, right? Like you need to get it into how do you say it? And right. when things, especially when things get heated in a negotiation, how do you keep focused on the things you care about? Yeah, yeah. so the language patterns, I'm 100% on board. That's really I'm- important. I'll give you two, um, give you and everyone else two very interesting things that happened that uh, one that completely blew a deal apart from a language pattern perspective mm-hmm. and one that my partner softened, uh, mm-hmm. even though it happened. So um, we were very close to a deal and the buyer of this business had a not so savvy advisor on their side. And we had agreed on all terms and literally we were waiting on the final email. And Tim, I will never forget these words. Uh, he writes, this email goes, uh, Peter and Sharon, we have decided, this is the first line. We have decided to arbitrarily reduce the purchase price by blank. And, and, and like, how, how, how do you say something like that? Like literally my partner, Peter was like, he, he, he called me, he goes, they could have said it so many different ways. And it was not even a significant amount. It was less than 1% of the deal. So it didn't even matter. But leading with that, we have decided to arbitrarily, arbitrarily reduce the purchase. And he goes, this, this alone, I am done in principle, right? And so yeah. the deal, that deal was done after that email. Right. And, and my partner called, like we, we did a principal to principal call and said, hey, you either remove the advisor or this deal is done. Like that's, hey, that right. got done. Right. And Did they not know what the word arbitrarily means? <laughs> and, you know, that was my question. Right? Just from a language perspective, I think it's super important to realize that, that a deal like that is, is supercharged, right? So Absolutely. I, I will never, yeah, I will never forget that, that line. And the second, yes. um, I know this is, a, this is a PG kind of show, but like I, this, was a, this was a 6 a.m. phone call, uh-huh. 9 a.m. East Coast time, 6 a.m. Pacific time. 
And their counsel called our counsel petulant a-hole. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, I don't even know what the word petulant means. Like I've, I've literally like dictionary.com. I'm like, what is this word? And I'm like, don't be a petulant a-hole. And I'm like, what, how, Uh, how, like this is. I like that a-hole wasn't sufficient. You had to add that modification, (laughs) especially petulant. I didn't even, so I, 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 uh, you know, it was a, it's clearly not a GMAT word, (laughs) which I didn't, which I didn't memorize, but, but there's, what I, the, the big learning in just in all of this, just from a language pattern perspective is, hey, yeah. one, converting the wins or, or banking the wins and saying, hey, now it's a process. Let's, hey, let me, let me go uh, do some analysis on this and get some data. Let me talk to Vogus on this and get this. I'll come back to it with these three things and maybe this will give us better information for our next conversation. You got it. That's it. That's it. Right. Yeah. Right. Because those things, both those circumstances you described with the language pattern was escalation, right? You know, that it didn't need to be said that way. But it did. There was some logic to it, presumably. Well, although with arbitrarily, not clear. <laughs> but but the other one, you see, it was somebody just getting really mad, right, and just kind of lashing out, right, trying to be extra flowery with how they did it. Um, we could, um, I could, I could, I could jam way more tactical questions on <laughs> on this one. But, but more importantly, now, I, if folks want to find out more about. Uh, either on T-Love or on, uh, <laughs> where, where, do, where do people go to get more of Tim Bogus? Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn, just as Tim Bogus. I'm on Twitter uh, at capital O-W-E-N, number four, capital A-I-D-A-N, at O-N-4 Aiden. So Aiden is my oldest uh, child, 18 years old, son. Uh, and there's a, there's a longer story around that, but that's, uh, you know, why, why that, why that moniker, but, uh, but that's where you can find me on Twitter. So I post a lot of, you know, links to research and other kinds of interesting things on Twitter, also with some hip hop opinions on there, uh, periodically, uh, and LinkedIn, I do some of the same too, and we'll post talks I give and stuff like that. Yeah. It's, uh, a big part of my adult career and me being who I am as a, is, is owed to you. So can't thank you enough for, uh, being a super cool friend and mentor to me and for being on today, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you for always making me better and uh, making every institution you're a part of realize its potential and its mission better because that's what you do and that's what you've always done. And that's why you are the overwhelming success you are and why people want to uh, want you as a mentor, a coach, and a person who gives them great insights. Hey, Sharon, I have a cool gift for you. I took some of my best ideas from the last 20 years and created a five-day MBA. It's quick and action-packed that you can listen to on the go, just like this podcast. And I want to give it to you for free, just as a thank you for listening to the show. No fluff, no gimmicks, just pure actionable ideas for you to use instantly. You can grab it right now at businessschoolshow.com. That's businessschoolshow.com dot com.